turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We'll look at the first 22 verses. So this morning we're going to talk about Saul's conversion. Most of you are aware that uh, Saul is Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament. Uh, please forgive me if I switch back and forth inadvertently between the names. I'm going to try to uh, match up Saul and Paul with their respective kind of times in his life, um, but I will probably fail. <clears throat> so you, uh, you may remember when we started talking about the book of Acts, how a full title of the book might properly be the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. Um, Luke started off his, his history in the book of Acts uh, by referring to his gospel as the record of all that Jesus began to do and teach which implies that Acts then is a record of what Jesus continued to do and teach as he grew his church through the uh, spread, uh, the proclamation of the gospel. <clears throat> and this event in particular, uh, Saul's conversion, is very important in the flow of Acts. Uh, this story shows up three times in this book. It shows up here and then um, also in chapters 22 and 26 when Paul is um, telling his conversion story. He's giving his testimony to the Jews or to King Agrippa. <clears throat> Dennis Johnson says this, Jesus' conquest of Saul of Tarsus is of central importance in Luke's portrait of what Jesus continued to do and teach after his enthronement in heaven. Uh, it's a massively important event in the history, in the expansion of the church, and there are a lot of themes in Paul's own writings that can trace their origins to this uh, transformational event in his life. You go through the book of Romans or the book of Galatians or um, pretty much all of his writings. <laughs> um, and you can, you can tie strings back to this as kind of the central um, trigger for him understanding the gospel and the way that he uh, comes to teach it later in his life. And it would take forever to draw all of those connections, um, so we're, we're really going to kind of speed through this text and not touch on everything. I just want to narrow our focus down on one thing this morning that I think will help us in our mission uh, to proclaim the gospel, and that's this. Trophies of grace make the best evangelists. Trophies of grace make the best evangelists. Uh, I'll explain what I mean in a few minutes. Let's pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we need your help. We want to be close to you. We want to have a relationship with you. We want you to work in our lives and to change us. Uh, we can't make these things happen by ourselves. So we pray that you would grant your spirit to come and... Uh, Renew our hearts and minds, that you would shape us by your gospel, by your word. We pray this for the sake of your kingdom and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women... He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. 
And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all those who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the Apostle Paul told his testimony a lot. Um, Little fragments of it here and there throughout his epistles, a couple times fully um, in action in the book of Acts. Maybe you've been in a church where there's a time set aside during the service or a baptism uh, or whatever, uh, a time set aside for testimonies, right? Uh, Here's a fairly common template that you hear Uh, frequently. Before I met Christ, I was a really bad person, and my life was a wreck. I cussed a lot. I drank a lot. Nobody liked me. Then I met Christ, and now I'm a good person. I stopped swearing, stopped drinking, stopped hanging around with sinners, got a nice family, a good job, a house in the suburbs. The implication, then, is that if you receive Christ into your heart, you can be a Christian like me, a good person, living a clean, easy life. 
Paul's conversion story is, is nothing like that. <laughs> in fact, it's almost the, the opposite of that. He says in his letters that uh, before he met Christ, he was living the good, clean, easy life right? of a law-abiding, righteous, well-respected, religiously zealous, good Jew. And then he met Jesus, and he got all torn up on the inside. All of his good accomplishments were thrown out, and his life became a mess of suffering and rejection. And he says he wouldn't have it any other way. He wouldn't have it any other way. Maybe that sounds crazy to you, (laughs) but um, listen to his story. The first time we see Saul in Acts chapter 8, He is supervising the execution of Stephen, Christian, the the first Christian martyr. And Luke writes in uh, chapter 8, verse 1, that Saul approved of of Stephen's execution. Saul was a young, zealous student of the Bible. He knew his Bible, the Jewish scriptures, what we have is the Old Testament. He knew that well, and he was consumed with a passion for the purity of of his religion. Later, as a Christian looking back on his life, he would tell you that his religious zeal was a means to self-righteousness for him. And he was trying to be someone in God's sight, in his own eyes, in other people's eyes. He was trying to be someone by being a good Jew, by being a good, moral, religious person. So when Stephen accused him and other good Jews of being uncircumcised in heart and ears, of always resisting the Holy Spirit, of having killed the long-expected Messiah and not having kept the law, that stung a little bit. He had built his whole life, his whole identity, his whole sense of worth around being a good Jew, and here's this Christian accusing him of being spiritually dead, opposed to God, lawless, and a murderer. Totally unacceptable. Not so much because it threatens the purity of his religion, but because it threatens the self-righteousness that he derives from his religion. So ironically, the one who can't stand being called a murderer approves of Stephen's murder and justifies it by saying that he's defending the purity of his religion. And he doesn't stop with Stephen. Luke goes on to say in chapter 8, verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison in the defense of his own self-righteousness, using the excuse of defending the faith, he was hurting God's people. A preacher friend of mine says, you know what we call those people today? We call them bloggers. Bloggers. As a Christian, Paul looked back on uh, this time in his life with horrible regret, horrible regret for what he'd done. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says this about himself. Formerly, I was a blasphemer, 
persecutor, an insolent opponent. And in Galatians chapter 1, he says, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Acts 26, when he tells his conversion uh, experience to King Agrippa, he says this, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Even to foreign cities. In our passage, um, Luke writes that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples. His raging fury had consumed him. He was like a devoted Nazi SS agent who tracked down Jews as they fled to the countryside to escape persecution in Berlin and who brought them back to face cruel imprisonment and even death. He was exactly like that. He was the church's number one enemy. In all of history, there's hardly ever been anyone so single-minded in his devotion to destroy the people of God. Hardly anyone. Right? There have been a lot of people who have done a lot of damage to people in general, but uh, there's hardly been anyone so single-minded, rarely, if ever, such a particular focus on destroying, on wiping out the church. And Saul had convinced himself that he had good religious reasons for doing this. Right? Good religious reasons for doing it all. Well, one day his zeal led him to foreign cities, led him to chase Christians all the way to Damascus, 135 miles north of Jerusalem, six-day journey on foot, further north than even those remote Galileans, right? And the text says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, he's getting close, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It says in verse 7 that the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. So with Paul's other accounts of this event in Acts 22 and 26, we get a more rounded out picture of what happened here. The blinding light hit them. The light from heaven shone all around them. It hit them. It knocked them all down. Everyone could see the light, but only Saul could see the figure in the center of the light. And they all heard a sound, a voice, but only Saul could understand the speech. Which is to say that this event could be corroborated by his companions. It wasn't just a hallucination on his part but it was especially intended to impact Saul in a transformative way. And this is what happened to him. A glorious being exploding with supernatural, blinding, heavenly light who knew his name asked Saul why he'd been persecuting him. At this point, Saul is probably frightened and confused. Frightened because this is... 
Obviously, an appearance of either an angel or God himself. And it clearly sounds like whoever it is has a poor opinion of Saul. And he's confused because, yeah, maybe you could say he's been persecuting some people, but he was pretty sure they weren't so bright, so divine, right? I'm persecuting those regular bad people out there, not, not this heavenly glorious being. He's probably not quite sure the safest way to answer the question, why are you persecuting me? So respectfully, he tries to get a little more information. He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And that right there was the end of his world. Saul had been sure that Jesus was dead. That rumors of his resurrection were just that, they were rumors. Yet here he was, alive, in all of his glory, just like all those eyewitnesses have been saying. Whatever other reservations one might have about putting faith in the God of the Bible, like questions about the goodness of God to allow suffering in the world, questions about the righteousness of God in sending people to hell, questions about the hypocrisy and the evils done by Christians in the name of religion. All those reservations fade pretty quickly into the background when you're confronted with the reality of the resurrected, heavenly Jesus. Those other questions may be important. They can be answered later. Right? You have to deal with the resurrection. After the gruesome finality of his death on the cross, if Jesus is risen, then everything he said is true, and he is the Son of God, worthy of all worship. If he is risen, you have business to do with him. You have to. Submit to him. And Saul, who of all people least wanted the resurrection to be true, was confronted with the stark reality of it. And later he wrote um, in 1 Corinthians 15 that at least 500 people had similarly been confronted with the stark reality of the resurrection. It was a fact that could be checked with most of them who were still alive 30 years later. You could check the facts with hundreds of eyewitnesses. And that historical fact turned the world upside down in a way that can't be explained by anything else. Turned the world upside down as it did uh, Saul's world on the road to Damascus. Saul had been convinced that Jesus was cursed by God. He claimed to be the Messiah, couldn't be the Messiah. He was cursed by God. You know how I know? He died on the cross. He died on the tree. And the scripture says, anyone who dies that way is cursed by God. So he can't be the Messiah. He can't be God's chosen one. 
And of course, he was partially right. Partially right. In his death on the cross, Jesus did suffer the loss of God's favor. He suffered God's wrath. He suffered God's curse that was meant for us in order to save us from the eternal fate that we deserve. But Saul had just hoped that Jesus was another false messiah so that he could just go about his life, so that he could continue to ignore Jesus' radical teachings about sin, about self-righteousness, his teachings that exposed who he was to the core of his, uh, to his rotten core, right? So that he could just continue to believe that his own religious law-keeping would earn him favor with God. Yet, here was Jesus, obviously vindicated by God in his resurrection and his heavenly exaltation. And Saul had been persuaded that he'd been doing the right thing all along, right? He'd been going after people that he thought were against God. That he'd been persecuting God's enemies. Yet here was the risen Lord Jesus, the Son of God, claiming solidarity and intimate union with his people, identifying himself with them so that their sufferings are his sufferings. Why are you persecuting me? Saul had been breathing threats and murder against them. He'd been persecuting them violently and seeking to destroy them. He'd been punishing them in raging fury. And everything he'd been doing against them, the risen, exalted, glorious Lord Jesus had considered as being done against himself. Saul, in all of his religious zeal, had been found to be an enemy of God. His life was over. He was just waiting for the lightning to strike. And as he was wincing and cowering, he heard Jesus say, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So he goes, blinded by the light of Jesus' glory. He's stunned into fasting for three days until one of the Christians that he was sent to imprison, Ananias, comes and calls him brother. Brother. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Of all the people who deserve the Lord's just and righteous wrath, Saul received mercy. He received forgiveness. He received healing. He received acceptance into God's family. He received the filling and the communion and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Of all the people who opposed Jesus and his church, Saul was chosen as an instrument.
to represent Jesus, to proclaim the gospel, to carry Jesus' name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. David Peterson says, the arch persecutor met the glorified Lord Jesus and was transformed. Even the hardest heart can be softened by God and the most formidable opponent can become a servant of Christ and a vigorous agent of his gospel. And all of this testifies to the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. The harder the heart that God softens by his mercy, the more beautiful his mercy appears. The more formidable the opponent that God fells by his love, the more glorious his love appears. When the arch-persecutor of Christ and his people becomes a joyful servant of Christ and a vigorous agent of the gospel, then you see more clearly the power of God's sovereign grace and you see that it is a delightful thing to submit to this grace. This is what Paul says about the purpose of his own conversion when he talks about it in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. When he calls himself the foremost of sinners, Paul is not using hyperbole. He is not uh, using false modesty. He really thinks he is the worst sinner. And he's got good reason to believe it. And the impact that his conversion has had on multitudes of people for thousands of years is this. If there's hope for someone like him, there's hope for someone like you. If there's hope for Saul, there is hope for anyone. Because our hope is not based on who we are. Our hope is not based on what we've done. It is based on Jesus, on his mercy, and on his sacrifice. If no one in the world deserved more of God's wrath than Saul, yet God had mercy on him, then you and everyone you know can be assured that there is mercy for you when you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus made Saul a trophy of his grace for all to see so that the patience of Jesus would be exalted, so that the love of Jesus would be exalted. Jesus made Saul a trophy of his grace so that people who want to know what it means to be a Christian can just look at Saul and see the clearest picture possible. Not a good, moral, upstanding citizen, 
Being a Christian means being a miserable sinner that Jesus forgives. Being a Christian does not mean being a good person so that God will love you. If that were true, then you would be a trophy of your own morality rather than a trophy of God's grace. Being a Christian means being reconciled to God at the cost of his son's life in spite of the fact that you are a worse person than you realize. And that doesn't just go for Paul. It goes for all of us. For all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus for eternal life. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 5. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Miroslav Volf says that peace is communion between former enemies. Peace is communion between former enemies. The gospel that we hold, the gospel that we proclaim, says that God turns his enemies into his friends by his grace alone, by his mercy alone. And that is why trophies of grace make the best evangelists. Because they attribute everything to the sovereign mercy of Jesus Christ. Trophies of grace know that they have nothing to offer God. But they know that beyond all hope or imagining, God accepts them as he accepts his own beloved son. And that brings a joy that cannot be contained. Trophies of grace don't have to keep up appearances to impress people with their own righteousness. They know that they're not righteous. That is not why they have any standing with God. But God freely imputes the righteousness of Christ to them as a gift. He counts it to them as a gift by faith. Trophies of grace can use their weakness as their best evangelistic tools. Relating to other broken people. Rather than coming across as condescending. Showing how Jesus is patient and forgiving of people like you and people like me. Trophies of grace know that their intimate connection to Jesus will sustain them through suffering and persecution as they bear his name before the Gentiles. So they're bold to continue proclaiming the gospel when things get tough. Do you have a sense of how desperately sinful you are? How you are in dire need of God's forgiveness at every moment? Do you run to Jesus for help and do you throw yourself upon his mercy? Do you trust that his life and his death on the cross are sufficient to reconcile you to God forever? Does the thought of the resurrected Lord Jesus bring you some comfort, some relief, some exhilaration? If so, then you are well equipped to bear witness to his grace. You have everything you need to share the gospel with people. All you have to do is tell that same stuff to others. 
you can testify to the fact that relationship with God is not something achieved. It is something received. People just like you have no hope. They have no hope that God would forgive them because they haven't heard the gospel applied to their sins. Guys sleeping with their girlfriends. Desperate mothers of unruly children. Drunken bartenders. Greedy corporate businessmen. They, um, they've too often felt our disdain and not heard the gospel from our lips and not seen the gospel in the way that we interact and relate to them as people who are just like them. You can assure others that God will forgive them in Christ. God has forgiven the likes of Saul. God has forgiven the likes of you. God can forgive the likes of them. And uh, you can assure them of God's love for them. You can even ask people like that to pray for you. You can ask people like that to pray for you because you need it too. And that doesn't happen when your life is a monument or a testimony to your own goodness. That only happens when you see yourself as a trophy of God's grace. So let's pray for that vision in our lives and for that to shape the way we interact with people in our communities. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are humbled by your grace. We have heavy burdens. Our own sins and weaknesses weigh us down. And you said to bring your burdens and your cares and lay them on you because you care for us and you are gentle and lowly and you share our burdens. You take them all on yourself. You have borne all of our sins. You have done away with every one of them. And so we ask that you would continue to humble us and make us to know our great need of your grace and above all, Assure us that you do have grace for us, that you laid down your life for us to reconcile us to God, to give us every good thing, to give us eternal life. We pray that this gospel would sink deeper into our hearts and that it would be quicker to come to our minds, that it truly would shape the way that we interact with everyone in this world so that we would be people who call attention not to ourselves, but to you. To your name, O Lord, not to ours, to your name. Give glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.